Welcome to the Creative Land Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews of items, and convention panels, and other exciting things that we run into from time to time. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, a sign to Ragnarok story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the 5th Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com slash cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Well, it is one o'clock, so I guess we could get started with this. All right. So... Hello, welcome to World Building 101, also known as What Us Writers Agonize Our Constantly. I'm Diesel Jester. Oh, I'm Amberlynn Pike. Uh, Babylon Holy Rose. Hi, Beth. Hi. Hi. Oh, I guess I'm. <laughs> okay, I guess I'm in charge of this. <laughs> No, it's not. Oh, thank you. Uh, I really wanted you to say yes. Yeah, it would have well, been. what did you tell us what you like? That would uh, well, like my mom likes to say, smut. But <laughs> I do the Jaegers of the Consortium series and the Fallen Star series. I have the um, first book of each of my series up here on, on display. And so I essentially had to create two separate universes to make them uh, uh, both unique and interesting enough so that people would actually consider buying my books. <laughs> Um, I've been doing this Wild West Con since Wild West 5. Um, so yeah, it's like I, I just started with just this book and this haversack. <laughs> so is it actually smut? I say that. Yes, it is. Because <laughs> I have a friend who writes adult fantasy and he has started uh, writing, writing fantasy smut. And he, I hope nobody minds. I think that's a great word. It just means very spicy <laughs> Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, a spectrum there. Um, and, and he asked me, he's like, you know, can I get away with using my name? Is, this, is there an, an audience? And, and I, I told him that I thought that it would be very difficult to push under a male name. Uh, but that's apparently what you do. Well, also the name Diesel Jester had kind of been my nickname since high school, uh-huh. and my first publishers under Steam Romance uh, thought it was far more marketable, especially with the steampunk uh, genre that hey, Diesel Jester that actually works yeah, better than your real name. So it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's a good form name. Yeah. Uh, if I saw it on a cover, I would think that's a guy. Yeah. You know. And it, I mean, it also gives the more conservative uh, members of my family plausible deniability yes. about what I write. So eventually, I'll get published under my real name. I'm taking mm-hmm. steps to to do that. Um, I got some submissions out there. So here's knock on wood. Uh, <laughs> Well, I stuff. think that's cool. So, but, and and your book is? Oh, my name is April Lynn Pike. I am the author of 14 YA novels and a picture book, which is actually, it's actually the picture book that I'm, I'm promoting here at the con um, because it is a, a comic-style uh, steampunk children's book 
graphic novel. It's it's uh, it actually it made the rounds in New York, and then we put it out on our own because they were like, it's too long to be a children's book, and it's yeah. too short to be a graphic novel. And I'm like, but it's perfect. <laughs> um, so I love it. It's wonderful. It's fantastic, and that's my my most incredible steampunk link. I uh, this is actually so historical, and I brought it because it has a corset on the cover, and corsets are delicious. So. Um, <laughs> But mostly I write young adult fantasy, and I have a few other things, including a steampunk short graphic novel. Um, I am the writer-creator of the Steampunk Supernatural series, Boston Metaphysical Society. Uh, it's in, uh, it started in graphic novel format. Um, it's also in uh, prose, and now audio drama, which we just finished that production just, audio engineered just a few weeks ago and delivering Kickstarter rewards as we speak. Um, but I am selling the flash drive, so you can pick it up here um, if you want. Uh, and that's it for me. You can use the word we, you have a partner? I say we because, uh, one, I am married, and running Kickstarters and running a business from your home, if you've got a spouse, it's a we. <laughs> <laughs> it's a you're the writer and the illustrator. I am the writer and the, no, I'm not the illustrator. Um, I am the writer creator, director, producer, and the money. Also. <laughs> Lots of hats. Uh, those are all the titles. Yeah. <laughs> right. I have all the titles. Uh, I've run 10 Kickstarters, which helps uh, produce everything. And then I do cons to help everything else continue forward. Um, but yes, I do hire only female artists for my graphic novels. Multiple artists. Yes, multiple artists. Um, and uh, I've produced, executive produced the audio drama um, as well. So yeah, I, I have a film and TV background, so uh, I can assure you being a producer is not glamorous at all, whenever anybody tells you. Uh, it's a lot of legal office work and herding cats. Uh, I write paranormal fiction and nonfiction. Um, my, my author tie to steampunk is that I wrote a young adult steampunk novel called Manifest. I set out with the intention of writing just a straight steampunk novel, and oops, it accidentally wound up revolving around paranormal things. So it seems like even when I try, I can't get away from <laughs> <laughs> things. Um, and actually, me being a guest here isn't really so much for me being an author. It's because I'm the one who does the Victorian death and mourning and spiritualism um, presentation. So I really love all of that stuff about how people dealt with death in the 1800s. And if you are a VIP member um, tomorrow night at six o'clock, we're doing ghost stories around the campfire. So that's the nonfiction side of, of my work. So then uh, how, how did like each of you guys go about creating your respective worlds in your in your fictional books? It's like... This is really exciting. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I've been living with these characters for a decade at this point. Um, uh, Boston Metaphysical originally started as a TV pilot that I wrote when I was uh, in the graduate program at UCLA Film School, and um, made the rounds. This is before you know. This is even before ten years ago. Uh, Steampunk really hadn't hit mainstream by the time. They liked it, didn't know what to do with it. You know, expensive, et cetera, et cetera. So it was suggested that I turn it into a graphic novel format to resell it back to Hollywood. Um, the only problem with that is I discovered I really like writing comics, and um, I love the indie uh, creator community, and uh, so I stayed with it. Um, and 
We have our original six issue miniseries plus four sequels out right now. Um, I've also retired recently to write a story for Lady Mechanica, for those of you who know Lady Mechanica and Joe Benitz. Um, looking forward to that. Uh, and currently working in another series. But going back to your question, um, My usual thing is I do bios on my characters, and usually from those bios, the world evolves as well. And so I do extensive research, and particularly Boston Metaphysical is alternate history with steampunk elements, um, it's a more accurate description. Uh, and then I, I develop between the world and the characters, I kind of develop them both at the same time. And like I mentioned, I do extensive uh, character biographies with Boston Metaphysical, since it was alternate history. I actually went back and revisited a lot of my American history and wanted to decide where the turning point is, where it veered off from what we know and what became what I call for short the BMS universe. And uh, you know, came up with what I thought was a a rational way of it, things that just happen just slightly different and what would happen then. Um, certain things like in the BMS universe, uh, you know, the Chinese Exclusionary Act never happened. Um, so you're going to learn more about that actually in the next series I'm looking at. Uh, and that everything veered off from uh, the War of 1812. And uh, instead of going into a more democratic nation, uh, I decided that the families who had the money started very slowly to take away civil rights. So eventually only the landed wealthy families had any right to vote. And there are the ones... Yeah, it's like, what kind of crazy world is this? <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, the government, the American government in BMS is actually a parliamentary oligarch. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, it's very Americana, um, but yeah, a lot of research and detail in how all of that stuff evolved. And there are paranormal elements in it as well, but it just, the thing with world building is you have to remain consistent. So you have to set down the rules and stick with those rules, even if later on it gets painful. They're like, no, I want to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sorry, that's already been established. We've got to keep the continuity. <laughs> so, anybody else? Uh, so mine is the other way around, which okay. is that it's set in the future, but they live like they're in the past. And so my book is set in France in the complex of the Palace of Versailles. And similarly, a super, super wealthy corporation has bought the complex and turned it into a sovereign nation. So it's a pocket sovereignty. And it's, it's a, there's, I did not make up this word. It is a corporatarchy, which is that it is uh, both financed and ruled by a corporation. So the CEO is also the king. Um, but even though it was set in the future and I had to do you know, research on the technology and stuff, like the Palace of Versailles is a smart house, and I had to think about where technology would, would uh, realistically be in about 100 years. Um, but I had to do a lot of researching of, of the history of the Sun King and all of the different generations that they had in the Palace of Versailles. Um, 
because this is someone who is extremely wealthy and can look back in history and cherry pick the most romantic, lovely, wonderful parts and then skip all of the, mm -hmm. the not so wonderful parts like no window or plumbing, which uh, oh. we always kind of skip past, we we'll often skip past in historical fiction because nobody really likes to think of a world without it. <laughs> um, but in order to, to um, twist any sort of mythos, whether it's alternate history or in this case a retro futuristic, you have to know the history and you have to set your rules and um, there have to be some that can be bent and some that just absolutely cannot. Um, but yeah, a lot of history research, even if you're going to be changing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, take the world and break it is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can fudge timelines. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. Care. Someone will care. Someone will be angry. <laughs> yes. We give you permission to ignore that one person who's never happy. Yeah, I kind of did that with the Jaeger series. I went back far enough because I was like, I want airships, but I want it to be plausible. So I go back far enough and I found that uh, even like in old California that in like, God, early 1800s uh, they were experimenting with airships and everything and um, so it's like ooh, what if some of these designs actually worked what if this kind of airplane worked what if Tesla didn't give his stuff to Edison <laughs> and yeah. it's amazing how much research into historical research you go into just to kind of break break the rules or deviate from the norm just for a character to toss off a witty one-liner. Um, in my second, or sorry, third book of Messenger, because I, I had this question, it's like, okay, well, your timeline diverges at the Great War. How are you, it's like, how are you getting around Hitler in World War II? Well, Hitler didn't make it through World War I, <laughs> uh, because I, I did find this little blurb about a, gen, um, supposedly a British soldier had Hitler Corporal Hitler in his sights uh, during World War One, and then later on in World War Two, he was being honored. Hitler saw the saw the news article and said, "Yeah, that was the man who spared my life." What if Hitler had died in that exchange? So, and that's kind of how I kind of circumvent all World War Two to to have my steam powered uh, modern day uh, evolve from there. Um, well, and you bring up a really interesting. There are so many parts of our history that literally the path of our history changes based on one genius innovator. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you make up another one who gets plans early or you take one away, um, then you, all of a sudden you have a realistic alternate history because you removed one person. Right. We have so, so many interesting pivotal characters. In oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's like a, good and bad. And it's like if one person did something different at this point in, in time, I mean, you could, in a way, map out a, a bit, to a certain extent, of how history could have changed at that point in time. And that goes a lot into world building, again, especially if you're going into the more historical um, historical fiction and everything. Uh, David Lee Summers, who, uh, who I'm sharing a booth with, uh, does the same thing with his uh, Weird West and everything. Of if the Russians knew that there was oil in Alaska, and if they knew how important oil would be, and um, and then it, um, they like orn ornithopters actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's where his old whole Owl Riders series came into being, uh, and I'm like going, wow, that's actually a pretty interesting 
left turn right there in the 1850s. And so it, it changed the course of history in his world as well. So, and then a couple years. Yeah, I think for me, um, for me, my world building isn't so much based around history, like, you know, for a lot of your work. For me, it's, it's that paranormal element where I want to take stuff that's realistic about ghost stories and things that people have reported and the kinds of things people claim to experience and then take it to some wild new level. And I think you have to do it in such a way, and I think this goes for historical, you know, alternate history as well. You have to do it in such a way that the reader is along for the ride and then they will believe it. And I think so, even no matter how wild it is, that Hitler got killed and World War II never happened, you still have to present it in such a way that the reader's like, I buy this, I'm in. Um, and so I think that's sometimes a challenge is trying to to get everybody there with you. Um, so I, I and, and I have, of course, gotten into something I'm like, I really want this character to do this. And then I look back and I'm like, oh, but I set this rule. Most ago, and it's like, rules oh, suck. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and I even wrote a scene like that in one of my series where um, a character's like, oh, well, like, there's there, there's this town that has sort of like this psychic barrier around it. And I wanted it to be that ghosts could not get through it. And I even had my main character say, well, ghosts can't come through the psychic barrier, right? And even as I'm typing it, I'm like, oh, no, that's wrong because somebody has gotten through. And so I had to kind of go back and sort of like fit it in and find a reason why this one ghost got through the barrier. And so it presents a challenge. And so that that's one of my questions for you guys is, do you run up against where you want to break your own rules? And if so, how do you circumvent that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, usually, I it's like um, if I have a character that said one thing, and then it's like I want to like totally contradict it uh, the other way. It's usually based on uh, what that character knew, and did he actually know he or she actually know the truth, and then I can like kind of retcon it a little bit and go, no, they didn't actually know what they were talking about. Here's what here's what it really is. And so you can kind of wiggle your way out of it at times, or at least yeah. I can anyway. But. Yeah, or, or you can change that, okay, at this point in time, that was true, but XYZ has changed, so this is no longer mm -hmm. true. If you if you set that up, and particularly if it's something you've done earlier, and you're currently writing a book, and you're like, oh, crap. And then <laughs> you can go like, oh, but this forces me to be more creative now in that, in order for all these things to, to happen and for this character to grow in this direction, um, let's set it up and say like, okay, yeah, that was true at this time and now, but because of these events happening or this person dying at this particular moment in time in the solstice or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, this, this thing is no longer true. I think it's an aspect of the storyteller's brain process that we, we catch details that create a pattern. Mm -hmm. um, I can't tell you how often I've done something in a not first book that looks like it was planned. And it was not planned. I ran up against something and I went, oh wait. And then you think back and you start and you go, well, but I can use this detail, this detail to make it look like I was gonna do this from the beginning. Um, and every author I've talked to has those moments. And I do. I think it's a pattern matching um, skill that is just part of the way the storytellers bring it work. <laughs> I have a thesis. And it's like, <clears throat> I totally plan that. <laughs> right, as a storyteller, you're also a puzzle solver. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one of, 
ways I address if people like, well, give me a writer's block. Well, no, not really, because usually the problem, the answer is it's something I've already written. I just mm -hmm. need to go and find it. Mm -hmm. And because the brain has already worked it out, I just haven't recognized it in front of my brain yet. And you go back, you're like, my experience uh, go right go work on another work in progress and and then it's like sometimes I'll, I'll be just like I have another scene for a totally different unrelated story that I'm just like getting out of my head then all of a sudden ding oh that's how I'm gonna solve that one <laughs> come back over <laughs> to this one studies on this when your brain is really focused on one thing it can really struggle to get the answer but if you'll just chill out and redirect mm -hmm. it to something mm -hmm. else it will rise to that would explain why I have like over a hundred works of progress. <laughs> yeah, it's like I just stopped counting yeah, after that. That's true. I'll actually be listening to an audiobook while I'm doing the elliptical at the gym, or I'll go like, oh, <laughs> that's how I solve that problem. I always get great ideas in the shower when my brain is relaxed. You know? <laughs> Napping is good. Yeah, for me. sleeping. Yeah, is I, I was struggling to find. I have a paranormal romance series, and I didn't know how to end it because I wanted my couple to have that happily ever after, but there were major complications standing in the way of that, and my husband and I were driving down to Disney World, of all places, and I was, you know, resting my eyes in the passenger seat, and I woke up and I was just like, <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sure that went well. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Getting out my phone recording before it was all gone out of my head, so uh, I think yeah. for as much as we work on the world building, you do have those moments where it just comes to you like fully formed and you're like, yes, there it is. So those are nice moments when they happen. Yeah. Well, and if you are a writer and you think that those are the moments we have all the time every day and, and you're not doing it right, you're doing uh, it right. Yeah, doing it right. They're, they're so valuable so and wonderful rare. because they're so rare. <laughs> so bare bones world building, uh, like starting your respective worlds from scratch, how did you guys start it? I think I mentioned biographies. Mm -hmm. yeah, biographies. biographies. And, and I go back, I go way back. I go after grandparents, great grandparents, depending on what I'm doing, because people sometimes forget <clears throat> that how much grandparents, and it's a cyclical thing, and how much carries on, and who in your family has broken the cycle of something in your family. Mm -hmm. And not to, I'm not necessarily talking about trauma, um, little things like, my grandmother was a coupon clipper. My mother was a coupon clipper. I do electronic coupons because I'm not an idiot. And, <laughs> and you know, I don't do the extensive like they did, but it's like one of those weird generational quirks that make your character more interesting. So I have um, three standalones and three series, and so I have started new worlds even if it's here on earth several times um and i've been on world building panels and i've had to figure out i don't know how do i make worlds but uh, the conclusion that i've come to is that, that it depends on what the highlight of that world is um you know if the highlight of the world is the supernatural power that your person has then that's almost certainly where my whole 
writing process is going to start is by looking at that ability and fleshing it out, making the rules because the rules are so important. Um, I have a book that is so completely character and voice driven and I just started writing and there were just conversations being had and it was only when I was a good 50, 70 pages in that I was like, okay, now this character is a ghost. I do need to make sure that there are some rules for her. But what really was the heart of the story was these two sniping at each other. <laughs> um, so I think that it depends on, on what ends up being the highlight of your story. Yeah, it's like with me, it's like I just, um, I just kind of start with the general idea of like with the Fallen Star series, it's like I just wanted a Spartacus in space. So I kind of just started with that. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, so how am I going to get that? Okay, let's do two warring nations that are completely different from each other. And so it's just little ideas building up on top of the other while I'm writing scenes out. And um, I'm, uh, I'm what some people call like a shotgun writer or a pantser writer. It's like I write by the seat of my pants essentially. And the first time I heard that phrase, I was like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I use it in a panel, especially if they're like teenagers in the audience, I'm like, and that means live at the seat of your pants. Right. And it's like disclaimer. So <laughs> yes. Um, Please go ahead. So it's like um, it's like I'll bounce around, do different scenes. Uh, rarely start at the at the start of a <laughs> uh, of a book, and then just go go from there. Uh, in my steampunk series, it was like okay, I um, I started off trying to do a modern romance. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, that didn't work because there were a lot of elements when uh, my wife, who's probably my biggest critic, uh, <laughs> um, goes, it's like, that doesn't work out. Why are they doing that? Why would they be doing that? Why would they be doing that? All fair questions. And of course, uh, me being the writer, I'm like, <laughs> hitting, my, hitting my head on the table and like going, it's like, oh, why do I even bother telling you my ideas? But I mean, it was for the better. I then tried fantasy. I tried science fiction with it and it what I wanted to do with with the society of being a more vic Victorian society on American soil and all that stuff, it just really wasn't working. And someone just goes, try steampunk. Well, it's steampunk. <laughs> and so I then, uh, but then the rules of what I wanted to do in this world all of a sudden fit because I, I could play around with steampunk a little bit more. Uh, some elements are true, some elements of totally made up BS. <laughs> And it ended up coming together uh, in the form of this book. And so um, the rest of the say is history. But I mean, a lot of it was just like built along the way of little pieces building on little pieces until all of a sudden you, you have to have your world. So, and don't be afraid to like toss out elements that don't work, put elements in that, that do work. And uh, try not to showcase the entire world all at once. Uh, that was one of the biggest problems I ran into early on in my writing. It's like, it's like I had this grand, epic fantasy world. I want to show the whole thing off. And then trying to start a story in that, I was like, going, where do I go? Where do I start? <laughs> so I figure starting small and then expanding the world from there works better. And, but your mileage may vary. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with writing bits and pieces to get them worked out that are just for you, that are never going to be. And always keep a always keep a cutting room file, <laughs> as I as I call it. Uh, it's like pieces of your story that might not work for this story might fit into a different story. 
So it's like I always encourage people, it's like don't delete what you wrote, just cut it, save it to another file, keep it there for, for future use because you never know when that might come in handy. And that also helps because it's hard to delete something or cut something out of your manuscript, especially if you really love it. Like mm -hmm. it's a great scene, but it just doesn't fit with the flow of the story. And it's a little painful when you're having to cut that out. So it's saving it makes it sting a little bit less. Yeah. Like, well, maybe someday, maybe someday this is going to find a home somewhere. So it's it yeah, the opposite. I'm like, delete relentlessly. You'll write it better the second time. But it is hard for people. And yeah. if the difference between cutting a part out of your book that needs to not be there and not doing it is saving it, save it. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. And yeah. I was, oh, sorry. No, no, actually, saving is a good idea. I do that as well. Not necessarily that I'm going to use that exact same thing, but there may be a core idea. That you want to go back to and something different. Mm -hmm. So it's not you didn't kill it. And if nothing else, you can share it with your readers. Like here's a deleted scene that nobody else gets to see. Exclusive so, on Patreon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> never let it go to waste. Yeah, it's, I do that a lot. It's like I I use my Patreon shamelessly for works in progress and get feedback from my. Uh, for my subscribers and. And you should be shameless. There's no shame in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and I, and I let them have their have their say because by this point in time, I mean they kind of know what my writing style is, and they're like, oh yeah, no, that doesn't work, or hey, yeah, that looks really good, or hey, try this or something, and so and so a lot of my patreons now get into my acknowledgments page, and, and wink, wink, go subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I never, I never totally delete anything. It's uh, it's like cut, snip, and don't ever fear the red ink. Get an editor that's not you. <laughs> Don't fear the red ink. <laughs> Some of the best advice I ever got from Lauren Coleman, <laughs> uh, who's an author of several Battletech books. Don't fear the red ink. The editors are there to help you. Um, you might disagree with it. You might, um, and they might want to totally change something. Sometimes it's good to fight with them, but <laughs> most of the time. You do need to get an editor who doesn't understand your genre. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And who is not you? Yes. <laughs> it's like I don't edit my own stuff. I I, I keep it as a, I keep it as a rule. <laughs> so. Probably not true. No. I send my stuff to my mother when I need to feel better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I give my stuff to my wife, who is a professional editor, uh, and oh, uh, she's got a she's got an English lit degree uh, uh, and a history major, and she does professional editing um, for legal documents and. Uh, so I send her my stuff as something fluff to uh, to ease her mind after a, a hard day, and she'll tear she'll tear my manuscripts to shreds. <laughs> but I mean, I'm a better. My husband edits my stuff relentlessly as yeah. well. Not everyone's spouse does, and it doesn't need to be your spouse. It doesn't need to be anyone romantically involved with you. But right, you need someone. Get a, get another set of eyes on on it and yeah. everything. Honest, but not Yes, yes, you need someone who is honest. Right. Um, and I think you do need the person who thinks everything that you write is, is wonderful. Some days, that's what you need, and that's like that's why I send stuff to my mom sometimes, and I'm like, just tell me I'm wonderful. Yeah. Yes. And one of the things that I like the best about my, my editors and my test readers is that when they do challenge me on something like this doesn't work, this doesn't make sense, 
if, especially if my editors, they might suggest, well, maybe you should change it to this. And usually I do not change it to what they're suggesting, but I find some other third option that's mm -hmm. actually better than what I had originally written. And so I think it's good because being challenged like that really gets your mind working of like, well, how, what is the best thing? What's the best thing for my character to say here? What's the best resolution to this problem? And so I think it does, I mean, you were talking about the we um, before. Mm -hmm. I mean, truly writing a book is a team effort and there's there's a lot of people involved along the process to oh, yeah, get us absolutely. to the final book. Yeah, I have an editor who really is fine because this isn't working and yeah. just absolutely terrible at suggesting alternatives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but she's right, that's mm -hmm. not working and then I need to come up with an alternative. But she's yeah. great at finding the ones. Yeah. yeah. No, like my husband is great at finding logic flaws. Yeah. That's what I use him for. Nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else. If I just go look for the logic flaws, honey, that's that's good. He's a rocket scientist, so he's really good. Oh, at yeah. I use my father-in-law for my science fiction stuff, and it's like, hey, does the does the ch tech check out on this? And oh yeah, if he, yeah, yeah, if he gives me a yay or nay on it, then. Um, but I think there's only one time I've ever like challenged the publisher uh, slash editors on keeping some something the way it was and. In my first book, um, in, in Shadow here, the the heroine's mother-in-law is this harpy of a witch, and um, just is like constantly downgrading her and uh, doing the sickly sweet to everybody else, but constantly getting on her case and just being mean and cruel and everything. And they, and my publishers wanted me to change her. I said no. I was like, no, she stays as is. They they're like, no, we really want you to change this. Nobody is this cruel. I said, let me give you my grandmother's phone number in 15 minutes you'll be apologizing. And they go, oh damn. <laughs> to test this theory, I gave I gave uh, the book to my cousins and I said, just read from here to the end of the chapter. Their jaws dropped. They're going, oh my God, you put grandma in here. <laughs> they recognize it without any context and they're like going, Holy crap. <laughs> and that's why I write under a pen name so that they have plausible deniability. You have to pick your battles carefully. Yeah. I had one moment like that with my publishers as well. There was um, an epilogue at the end of my first series. Um, and I had been, I'm a planner. Mm -hmm. um, and I had had this thing planned from the beginning of book one. And it's, it's not necessary for the plot. <clears throat> it's a follow-up epilogue. And mm -hmm. it is kind of shattering. Um, and I love it because I love things that <laughs> um, and my editor was like, I just, I think that you should take it out because it's not actually needed for the plot and I think you should make it bonus material on your website. And because I, I've worked with this editor for four books, I trust her, she's brilliant, but not a suggestion. Um, <laughs> and, and so my first round of it, edits, I took it out and I sat with it and I just, I was very upset. I was like, no. And so second round edits, I put it back in and I let her know, I've, I've decided to just know. And I've thought about this and then, you know, and she's like, okay, it's your book. Um, and then when it came out, every single professional reviewer um, mentioned it in their review. And I was right. Mm. But you have to pick your battles carefully. I, I did what she said a lot of times and the books were better for it. 90% mm -hmm. of the time, my editor is better at those analyzation things mm -hmm. than I am. I'm a creative person. I always have to give it to someone for logic because I'm not a very logical person. Um, but I'm good at the creatives. But I was like, I know what the emotional impact of this moment is going to be and it needs to be in there. And I was right. Mm -hmm. But 90% of the time, she was right. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, 90% of the time, though. <laughs> yeah, you have to know when, when is the right time to speak. Stick to your guns. So we got about 10 minutes left. I mean, do you all have any questions? <laughs> well, I have a, um, kind of a comment. Um, this is more about where the books are being published. Um, I have arthritis in my hands. I can't hold, physically hold a book. I keep changing. So are these available electronically? I mean, do you take in that into account that demographic yes. of people yes. that can't physically hold like the hardcover? I know. I well, all people who books. are hard of hearing of any degree, whether fully deaf or just hard of hearing, um, audiobooks are expensive. Yes, and I are. really mm -hmm. like the text to speech function. And I've always told my publishers, do not disable that. It's important that, well, and, and also uh, people with dyslexia who are oh. reading ebooks at the mm -hmm. same time as the ebook is being read to them, um, I've heard is so much of the success of my, in my life is based on the fact that I can read well. And that's because my brain has to work that way. So I try to be very aware of people who can't read as well as I am, through no fault of their own. Um, and so I've heard that if you can hear something while you're reading it, that it's really good for dyslexic people and they can follow along better. Mm -hmm. So yes, I do think of that. Usually it's in terms of hearing rather than hands, but yeah, eBooks te and text-to-speech yeah. specifically, I'm very insistent on. Yeah, yeah. eBooks are definitely, uh, I think, where the where the industry is heading, that and audiobooks. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I mean, all my, all my, anything that I'm selling at my booth is in Kindle format. So okay, it's like, good. come by, pick up a business card, uh, links to my website and my Amazon page are there. Uh, so it's all available in Kindle. I only have one story that's in audio format and that was in the Dukes of Harem anthology that just got recently published. And uh, since it trended so well uh, opening, we got lucky and uh, uh, Royal House Publishing picked us up for an audiobook and that just went live two weeks ago. So it's like, yeah, I now have a story in the audiobook. <laughs> I'm so happy. But but yeah, I mean, getting anything out on Audible is very expensive because you're paying for the producer, you're paying for uh, the voice actors. and Right, so uh, if you don't have the money to put up for it, I mean, yeah. Shadow's been sitting on uh, uh, ACX for years now with nobody wanting to to do it. So it's like, I and I don't have the money to front for it <laughs> myself because I don't make that much money off of my books. <laughs> um, Are you thinking that? I guess well, you wouldn't have to. Well, well, no. well yes and no. Um, yeah, ebooks are just a normal part of publishing now. That's that's yeah. that's a given. Yeah, that's everything's going to be in an ebook. Let's hear it for KDP. As as far as audio, I did produce one of my short stories through Find a Way Voices um, a while back, just because I wanted to run through that. Because being a short story didn't cost that much, mm -hmm. and I wanted to go through the process. I have since produced an entire audio drama, wow. which that's is nice. a. Uh, called Boss of Metaphysical Society's Ghost Ship. I'm selling the flash drive of the MP3s at my table. Um, and that was a whole different thing, because this was, you know, 12 actors. This was a whole, we have music, we have special effects. This is like oh, a wow. full-time radio show. Oh, that's um, awesome. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, but that was done through a combination. Um, I decided to pivot my business during the pandemic. Uh, got a 
Grant from California uh, Small Business um, and, uh, and ran a Kickstarter. So, you know, everybody got paid. That's, That's important. important. Everybody got paid and we got produced and it, I haven't decided which platform it's going to eventually land on. CDs are in production right now, uh, just a limited amount. Um, I'll probably have those at, like, I should have that at WonderCon. I won't have those in time for a uh, uh, But everything goes out to Kickstarter backers first before I bring it on sale. But yeah, it is very expensive, even if you're just doing a novel. I mean, you're talking a basic price of like was it eighty thousand word, probably about twenty five hundred dollars. Yeah. That's what I put it on. Yeah. It's around. It's roughly around twenty five hundred dollars just to produce it. And um, I was very fortunate, and I actually found a, a very good uh, voice actor to do my short story. Um, who said I'll do more. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Yeah, so Kindle you're going to find anywhere, uh, even very, very uh, my, com my comics, they're all available digitally through SourcePoint Press, because um, I originally started out as self-published, but I was picked up by a publisher um, a few years ago, uh, but yeah, it's, I have people, I, have, I do a novel anthology, and people I do have an audiobook, and I just, I just can't, I can't afford that, yeah, and, and most, most indies even like big newer publishers will all often have an in-house audio department so that they don't have to outsource it because it is that makes that makes sense for yeah. expensive. probably tour does or yeah yeah mm -hmm. random house they probably do know yeah there's brilliance audio books and so many yeah brilliance if i recall there you go don't go and i actually think your question is interesting because it's the opposite question that i usually get because most of my book sales are Kindle, um, but I do still offer everything in paperback. And so I get a lot of people saying, well, but I don't like reading on a digital reader. I like that old school feel of paper in my hands. Yeah, and I mean, works. I do like that. I just can't right, do it. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, so I just think it's interesting because so many people have made that switch to Kindle, but I mean, I love that there's still people that, you know, want to hold a book too. And I'm, I'm a, I have a, about four books I, I tend to read over and over again, and those I read in paperback, but the rest I've just gotten Kindle. It's mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, I don't know, a lot of people, but for me, if it's a new author, I will usually get their Kindle book. Try them out. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. if it's something like, oh, I like them, I want more, then I'll prob I won't buy the paper, I buy the hardback. Because I find the paperback is hard on my hands. Yeah, you do, it's like, but the hardback I can because it'll sit better. Right. At least for me, everyone's it, different. Yeah, and, and it does. It's since I'm holding it open and it doesn't always fall open for if it's a new one. If, if it's a new one, but yeah, the yeah. paperback ones are even harder. They you are. really have to use some, some force yeah. if you yes. have arthritis or something. But um, yeah, but the yeah, then the Kindle the Kindle is great. Yeah, okay. right. I know a lot of libraries have expensive Kindle or yeah, and they um, the authors do get paid for those. Um, yeah. So don't feel like you're, I mean, like, not everybody can afford to support a bunch of authors, um, but your taxes support the library, and the library pays the author, so you may as well take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. yep. Like, right now, I'm rereading for the umpteenth time um, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, mm -hmm. and I used to have them all in physical hardcover, but then it just became, you know, Therefore, I just got worse and yeah. everything. So now I'm 
you know, I'm buying them one by one. That's a lot of pages to turn. It sure is. And if you're towards the end of one book and you want to have the other one with you to start it, that's a lot of books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, nowadays nowadays I get a majority of my books on Kindle, and I just, the only things that I ever get in physical uh, paperback anymore is definitely the Battletech series, because I've been collecting those since 1980s, wow. <laughs> uh, and usually uh, indie authors from uh, conventions like this one. So, um, uh, in fact, there's a debut author, uh, her name is Mona, and right next to our booth, she's selling her very first book, so it's like oh, I bought yeah, I, I bought a copy of her book, because I remember how that was, uh, just being there, yeah. and going, it's my only book, please buy it. <laughs> so, As a grown-up little nerd, yeah, um, right. the yeah. idea of carrying a <laughs> yeah, it's All right, so we're at 145, so uh, last shameless plug down the, down the line. <laughs> Follow me on Mesa if you want to come here about Victoria Depp and Morning Customs. We're doing that next. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm online at bestgoldner.com. Again, I write paranormal fiction and nonfiction, so if you like uh, ghosts and demons and other spooky things, let's hang out. Um, I have a table out in the hallway across from the vendor room. I have another panel at which is about gears and putting, I, I don't know, I, they have so many panels. Beyond the gears and onto the page, yeah, they didn't invite me to yeah. that one. So. Yeah, thank you, and, um, and then I have uh, one at five, which is a, a Q&A about if you want to produce an audio drama. I am next to her uh, across from the vendor side. I'm just talking about where you guys are. Yeah, because um, you're not with us. Well, give me a second, and I'll do that. But it's not your turn. It's your turn. Your turn. <laughs> and, uh, I have a spotlight that's all about me. And I'm Diesel Jester. I'm in the vendors hall. Uh, they got us in the back corner, so. Um, uh, just go like straight to the back wall and you'll find us there. Uh, and I'm sharing it with uh, David Lee Summers. Shouldn't be too hard to find. So, uh, But yes, please uh, support us authors and all the other authors here. And uh, thank you for coming. Yeah, <laughs> thank, you. thank you for giving us wonderful worlds to lose ourselves in. <laughs> we try. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.